Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Rorag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. I'd like to welcome Colin Henke to the Rorag podcast. Colin is a client of Tamania Angus. He lives in the southwest of Victoria, and Colin has a very inquiring mind. He is always asking difficult questions at Tamania workshops and field days. These questions are very welcome as they stretch our boundaries. Welcome to the Rorag podcast, Colin. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Tom. So um, we had something very odd that happened to us this week. Um, well, it was actually last Friday. Uh, one of our um, stock girls, um, Lily Stewart, found a um, GoPro in one of our feed bunkers here. Um, so we, when we're in the morning, we in the evening we feed a bit of um, cereal hay with some mag in it to the heifers that are calving at the moment just to make sure that they don't run out of magnesium, which we're a bit short of in the country generally around us. And um, so that hay goes in every night. And um, the um, Lily was just going down checking to see how much had been eaten from the day before, and she found a GoPro in the feed bunker. And so I came back to the office, and I thought it might have been mine. don't know how it got there, but anyway, so I took it home and pulled the card out of it, the SD card, and put it in my computer. And um, and it had a whole lot of ballooning footage, which, you know, I've never been ballooning before. It wasn't, clearly wasn't my GoPro. <laughs> so um, it sort of uh, intrigued us quite a lot. How did this GoPro get into our feed bunkers? So um, how do you reckon it got there, Colin? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, 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 the hay contractor perhaps. So yeah, it fell out of the, it fell out of a balloon. At oh, I did. Oh, I did. <laughs> yes. It oh. fell out of a balloon at Horsham into a hay paddock two years ago in, um, 2019. Um, and then that summer or the summer after it got picked up by the hay bale, probably the summer after and was pressed into a square bale um, that was destined for export because it was a, a rejected export bale. We buy those a bit. They're pretty good. And um, it was rejected because it had a foreign body in it. And I reckon the foreign they x-ray them all, you see, and the foreign body was probably the GoPro. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so it went into the reject section and got on a truck and came to us, went through our mixing wagon to mix the mag in, and um, we put it in a feed trough and then the cattle ate all the feed and left the GoPro behind. How's that? <laughs> so did you return it? We have. He's got it back. we able to, in some of the footage, we could see another balloon. And so he got the serial number of that balloon and looked it up and found that bloke's name and then it was posted on a ballooning social site, social media site, and um, someone contacted us. Well. Yeah. They would have been happy. 
<laughs> it's quite quite a crazy story, really. Yeah. So, um, what have what have you been up to? Uh, I suppose uh, maintenance, actually preparing for heifers and uh, cows to calve. So that that's what we're about to do. Um, but yeah, generally maintenance infrastructure projects is probably what I'd call it. That's what yeah. we've been doing. Um, ready for the onslaught of calving as you you're right in it. Apparently, is that right? Yeah, we're just finishing round one. So, um, yeah, round round one uh, heifers, yeah, you know, 350-odd, I think. Um, so we had we had over, you know, uh, it's about 250 calves in the last seven days. Uh, we had one day of 52, which was busy, in heifers it is. Yeah, wow. Well. Um, yeah, so we have sort of um, a bit, we go a bit earlier than you. So, yeah, you're running around doing some maintenance just so that you don't uh, have, have fewer breakdowns during really busy times? Oh, just water at the moment. Just uh, yeah. use the winter time to uh, upspec the water. We're sort of doing a bit of redeveloping. This property is uh, was developed uh, in the late 50s, uh, early 60s, um, and, and the water infrastructure needs upgrading. So, yeah, upspecking water pretty Good. much. So you're reticulating that all over? Uh, yep, yep. So just getting flow rates uh, a bit higher um, with two-inch pipe. They had inch and a half, and, um, yeah, as, as things go, I think some of these things have got cheaper on a, on a per-unit basis, I suppose. In the old days, two-inch pipe would have been very expensive, I'd imagine, which I suppose it still is, but rel- relatively speaking, not so much. Yeah, and I think over time too, Colin, now. Stocking rates have gone up and um, feed, um, you know, ability to grow pastures improved. The uh, stock densities have gone up, so the water infrastructure has to go go with it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yep. Yeah. And so what sort of rainfall, what sort of country are you in down there? You're at, um, what? Do you have, what's your local town? How do you do uh, so we're and we're only thirty kilometres east of Mount Gambier, which is uh, in South Australia, but we're in Victoria, so the very southwest of Victoria, in uh, seven hundred and fifty mil rainfall, uh, sandy to sandy loam soils, uh, twenty kilometres off the coast as the crow, crow flies, so a fairly uh, assured rainfall yeah. area. Yeah, yeah, and. Um so you're running cattle, yeah, all which cattle. is um, strange being on the podcast, on the Raw Egg podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we we, we uh, used to be half prime lambs and half cattle, and um, gravitated towards cattle. I, I suppose <clears throat> sometimes you you use figures to your heart's content, but at the end of the day, I think you gravitate to things that you enjoy doing. I think that's how I'd put put myself. I think. Uh, the, the sheep certainly are profitable, but um, as you get older, I think uh, some of those uh, harder jobs get harder, and I think I've gravitated to 100% cattle for that reason, I think. Yeah, my old man, his dad, uh, Andrew Gubbins, used to say, you know, he'd go onto a property, you could tell which was the most profitable enterprise by how much interest the farmer had in it. Yep. You know, yeah, so, um, yeah, you can... You can use your um, profitability, and and it look it stacks up. There's no question, but I I think the sheep probably were more profitable um, over a longer period. Um, but you know, there's some added 
the areas in sheep. I think uh, pasture costs are the ones that I started looking at. You know, sheep are very, very hard on pastures. So when you start bringing in the capital costs of re-sowing and stuff, I think that that's not considered in a lot of times. But as I say, you can you can use all these figures and everything, but at the end of the day, I think you do you do what you like doing. I think yeah, that's yeah. that's what I I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you um you do a lot of measuring, don't you? You you're pretty spot on. What's your past? What brings you to be a, such a measurer? <clears throat> I don't measure all the time, but what I've I think what I've done and I've taken snapshots at times and um, mm-hmm. and then I th- and I don't necessarily follow up too much on on measurements because they they are a, I suppose they're a guide but um, yeah I think I was fortunate enough to be a, a focused farm for a farm group that we had and so the measurements that were done were from the the Department of Ag I suppose that was a beef manager group that was running at the time. Um, and I put my hand up to be a focus farm and the information that, that was uh, gleaned from that measurement um, was was uh, the measurement that I suppose that I, I look at and, and it makes me realise why things are like they are and then actually be able to fine-tune things a bit. So I don't actually measure uh, all the time but do some snapshot measuring at times. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, um, you know, obviously it's a wet environment down there. You have um, water lying around. Well, your sandy loam would probably dry, be um, quite self-draining, wouldn't it? But yeah, tell us takes, a bit more about that. Yeah, well, it takes uh, it takes quite a bit to get it wet. See, at the moment, see, for example, we've had uh, we've probably had about 80 mils of rain in the last, I don't know, 10 to 12 days, um, and it's it's sopping that up, generally speaking, so that hasn't created major problems. But So the next six to eight weeks with another 80 to 100 mils, which is sort of average for August, um, that will lay some water around. So, uh, yeah, it is quite uh, free draining. Yeah, but once the subsoil fills up, that's sort of curtains. Oh, well that that's when you've got to keep the water moving. I think that's. Yeah. Uh, I think I've had a discussion with you before that some of those measurements showed that the grass in water is is growing at about uh, less than a quarter of of the rate just outside the water, even though it still grows. That was the amazing thing. We still actually get growth uh, underneath the water in in because it's not stagnant. It's actually a. Uh, I think it's a high organic matter soil, which I think keeps a bit of an aerobic aspect to the soil as well. Right. So it doesn't sort of – so it doesn't rot down on you and, yeah, it doesn't, yeah, go um, anaerobic and get get smelly so much. Yeah, you notice the areas that do, that's where I think uh, – and I think I spoke to you about, um, you know, making it – making you aware of how important drainage is because if, if water is moving – it doesn't allow that anaerobic, but when it's stopped and it, it just sits there, it does go stagnant. Um, right. Oh, sorry, keeps it aerobic. Anaerobic is when it sits and goes stagnant, yeah. So tell us about a little bit about your um, carrying capacity, um, you know, um, and some of the some of the stats that you do on your farm, you know, some of the animal, the um 
kilograms of drum, kilograms of beef per hectare and stuff like that? Do you work all that sort of stuff out? Yeah, well, it's a fairly easy thing to work out, really. Um, when you, if you just have a column next to your your accounts and and every sale that goes through, it's just you know the live weight goes on that, and you divide it into the the hectares and on an annual basis, the four eighty to five hundred kilograms a hectare live weight turnoff seems to be fairly consistent. Um, and I suppose from those measurements done by the department as a focus farm, uh, come up with the ten to twelve tonnes of dry matter per hectare. Uh, grown and the interesting one which is a bit um, oh, it, it's probably a bit academic really is that the figure that came up at the time was that I, that I was actually using 110% of feed grown so you know that's obviously an impossibility but I suppose what it does show with with not measuring uh, everything across the whole farm using some um, assumptions I suppose um, and averages, which do, it, it's obviously not accurate. And actually, Cam Nicholson, with my discussion with him about that sort of thing, he said yeah. you'd, be growing, you'd be growing more than 10 to 12 tonnes was his comment when I sort of said that. So it's an interesting thing, but um, it, it's, it's something to talk about, I suppose, and, and I suppose just see what other people are doing if, if there's measurements perhaps. Yeah, well, that's uh, – and I hope to have a chat too. Um, Cam soon about pastures from space, which is, um, you know, the next rollout of it is going to try and solve some of those issues for us, which will be exciting. Um, perhaps not give us an annual tonnes per hectare, but, you know, give us an indication of whether it's growing or not which is is a pretty good idea. But, you know, they're, they're saying that they're going to be able to tell us how many, how many what, what's the residual in every paddock, which would be pretty exciting. Yeah, well, when he was talking about that, I think I got a bit excited because because of that. I, like I said, a snapshot because it's quite a job to to start uh, testing paddocks, even if you use a falling plate meter and all those things. It's a bit of a job. So that uh, concept of from the satellite, I thought that's a wonderful concept. Just on that, Tom, um, and I, this is a question. This is not. This yeah, is, I don't I don't know this, but um, if I and I just, if you'd say take it on face value that you are growing, say, about 11 tonne of dry matter per hectare, and you turn off, say, 500 kilograms of live weight per hectare, and you take a, a, a figure of, you know, a rule of thumb, is it about seven kilograms of dry matter to produce a kilogram, sort of rule of thumb? Well, uh, yeah, on grass, that that's probably about it, probably a little less, but that's, yeah, rule of thumb. So, so am I, is this too simplistic to say that if you're producing 500 kilograms a hectare, uh, that means you're using only three and a half tonnes of per hectare for production? Does that mean the rest is for maintenance? That, that's probably a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, a fair bit of it's for maintenance um, and a fair bit of it gets walked in. You know, you you that uh, you know your 110 percent utilisation numbers will be more like. I would think it'd be more like 70, wouldn't it? Well, Same. I don't know. It, I mean, that was an academic figure based on you know overlaying the the production when it's produced and when your animals are producing because they're all itemised on a spreadsheet showed where the deficits were and where the um, surpluses were. That all went yep. through. And so that's why I say it's because we only did measurements of um, uh, 
so I said, I thought we might have four soil types and we said, right, let's put cages on each of those soil types and then times it out over the hectares that was estimated to be those soil types. Yeah, maintenance maintenance is a pretty big portion of where the energy goes in a in a beef production system. Um, you know, and I sort of describe maintenance as cow tax to the farmer, really. Um, if you and if you can reduce that maintenance by, um, and that's what growth rates about and fertility. So, the more animals are getting calf and the faster they grow, um, reduces the ratio of animals that are. Uh, the amount of energy that goes into maintenance, and also the younger the animals are, so keeping a bigger portion of your females and selling out and making your cow herd younger biologically is more efficient. Financially, it may not stack up, but biologically it is um, because maintenance is just is as a ratio of amount of energy being used is um, is changed because um, more energy is going into growth and actual production than keeping them alive yeah yeah so i suppose um and we've spoken about cow maintenance and cow size and stuff so i suppose a lot of those things if that's put in into a uh, into figures it, it can actually make that more understandable can't it if, if you've worked those figures through yeah well yeah cow, cow size is one of the as you know, you know, one of the, the great debates in beef at the moment, you know, and, and I think the reason why we debate it so much is because um, we know no little, we know so little about it, um, you know, and everyone has an opinion about what size a cow should be. And, and, um, and it's, I think it's because it's not really clear. Um, so, um, you know, as a, I sort of work away a bit at a rule that, you know, if you're in a country like yours where, uh, it's very reliable. The cow sizes can get a little bit bigger and you need to then find a market that justifies it. So, you know, going into long fed justifies having larger cows because the steers grow out to, bigger, to be bigger. Um, whereas, you know, if you're in more unreliable, you an unreliable feeding um, environment, cow size probably needs to be a bit smaller um, because they need to be able to, uh, maintain themselves for longer where, where there isn't any feed. Um, and therefore, then you've got to find a market that suits that. But it sort of happens in reverse, actually. You know, the, 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 in, in most grazing systems, the smaller animals end up in uh, because of grass, fin grass finishing and the larger animals end up out in the outback, which is, you know, not quite right. But biologically and, and economically, they're different. So... Yeah, cow size is tricky, and um, you know I know that your market what, that you're um, targeting, you can probably get away with a little bit more cow size. Yeah, I think the um, I suppose if you keep this snapshot I talk about, if you if you keep tabs on it and just say, look, if you're still turning off that five hundred kilograms and you you haven't reduced that, um, and you haven't had any additional costs, it it it's okay, isn't it? But well, you're probably trying to predict uh, where you're heading is probably the because it's 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 too late once you get to a point you think oh look I've done this wrong so yeah does that does that uh, make mm -hmm. sense yeah it does but you you know and but there's two also in beef there's two sorts of attitudes it's whether you um, 
run your farm and choose your genetics and your animals to maximise the profit the day they leave your farm and not give too much regard to the next um, level of the industry or whether you have a, um, a fully a full view of the whole supply chain um, and and consider, you know, how the processes and the backgrounders and the feedlotters are all going to take part in profiting from the animals that come off your farm. And those two different attitudes end up with completely different results. Um, and I don't know, where do you sit on that? Uh, I suppose you've got to look after your own business first, I, I think, Um if you did everything for the next the next part of the supply chain, that it can be detrimental to your business. So, so yeah. it's a bit of. A, I mean, you've got to keep an eye on it, obviously, but uh, you can't shoot yourself in the foot, can you? Yeah. Well, you want them to come back and buy them again, don't you? Well, that, so that's have, true. So it's a bit of a quandary, business. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you've got, to have a, you've got to have a bit in there for them. Um, yeah. But in, in a genetic sense, it's a really interesting debate too because selection pressure, um, so we could put selection pressure on fertility and growth um, and um, carving ease and all the traits that are only specific to farm and then have 100% of our selection pressure only on those traits and make much, much faster genetic gain to that outcome, which would be not giving any... Um, forward advantage or genetic advantage to the rest of the industry or we could have a whole supply chain approach and say and that's what we do we say you know we'll put genetic selection pressure on the farm bit and we'll also put a lot of genetic selection pressure on marbling and retail beef field and and, and other traits that the, the processes will um, profit from so that uh, our clients animals reputation is looked after but um, but not you know not all seed stock suppliers have that attitude, which is fine. You know, everyone, it's a free world. You can choose whatever you want to do. But um, yeah, but it, it it's um, it's pretty. You know, it's not a great. If you took that off to an economist and said you're going to give a whole lot of selection pressure to the next part of the industry, and you don't know what you're going to get back for it. Um, in most businesses these days, you just they just think you're stupid. Well, I suppose I'm fortunate in being in the Team Tamania program that a lot of those things that you're you're thinking about and you're deliberating over, and I'm I'm probably just on your coattails in that area. Um, oh yeah, no, you push us along a bit. I can tell you that's <laughs> what I'm talking to you. <laughs> yeah. No, oh, well, no. that, it's it's good. It's good that there is an influence there, but ultimately, uh, you are doing. Good things, I suppose, and I and but getting that background—that's what you're developing, isn't it? Uh, your industry, or your not your industry, your part of the supply chain is uh, pulling a lot of things together to come out with an outcome. And um, yeah, we—I think as, a, as the team Tamania people that are generally uh, really uh, appreciate that, I think, because it's taking a lot of our. Because uh, we we could be doing that ourselves in our business, each one of us, I suppose, and deliberating over these things to choose where we were getting our bulls from. But uh, yeah, it's a yeah. very fortunate uh, system, I think. So, the, the, um, Colin, there's a a whole another level that's going to be is starting to be imposed on businesses 
all over the world in all sorts of different areas, and that is, you know, social license, um, climate change, and things like that. Um, we're going to have to start considering those sorts of things. What What are your thoughts on, um, you know, how um, how much emphasis we should be putting on reducing greenhouse gas emissions out of beef animals? Uh, well, if it if if the people that buy our product are adamant that that's what we have to do, um, it 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 is very important, isn't it? Because I mean, I always took the position. I, I use an analogy of um, growth promotants. I suppose the science says that growth promotants absolutely work, but if you take one or two markets away because there's growth promotants, well, you just don't use the growth promotant. So is that a reasonable analogy in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 basically you're going to be, uh, yeah, we're going to be led by whether the consumers accept it or not. And so if they don't accept it, we have to change so that we fulfil what they want. Yeah, I think that's how I'm seeing it, even though, uh, yeah, some science, I mean, a lot of this stuff can, can get quite emotional too, but at the end of the day, if that's what's what consumers want, I suppose, and that's probably what we have to provide. Is that is that how you, I don't know, I'm still... Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, the, 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 the dilemma that we've got is that we can do it. And actually, to be perfectly honest, we have been doing it because... You know, um, increasing growth rate and increasing fertility, uh, ca- increasing animal efficiency reduces methane um, intensity. And so you get, with the same units of methane being outputted, you get more production. Um, and then there's methane yield, which is reducing the actual amount of methane that comes out of the animal's mouth. And we can, and genotypically, we can change that too. We know it's heritable. So some animals in the herd produce less methane than others, and the ones generally that produce less methane are related, can be related. So um, we can start to do it. Uh, we've got to collect the data, which is expensive, though. But I, I'm just not sure as a seed stock person at the moment how much, um, how, how hard we go on it. But we're thinking pretty hard. Well, I I just hope that the um, that the uh, the science, I suppose, is being understood by consumers. That that's the bit that is can be annoying. That um, you you can talk about methane emissions um, and production. So per unit of production, that that's what I picked up on there. That on a per unit of production, that can be. Uh, um, Done on a, on a production level, even without genetics, can't it? So you produce more on a, on the same grass, if you like, or the same uh, animals that are there. You're producing more. D- does the consumer necessarily see that sort of thing? No, they don't. No, they see. Well, I think generally the general public sees um, the animals produce methane, therefore, and methane's a greenhouse gas. Therefore, um, we should stop. We should um, do something about that, but. You know, as um, the methane carbon, the methane cycle in beef is about 22 years. Um, it's it basically, it's back, you know, the methane emitted today in 22 years' time is gone, um, which is completely different to 
a carbon cycle and burning fossil fuels out of a car, which is a 300 million year cycle. And at the moment, um, photosynthesis and carbon being sequestered into the ground, it doesn't sequester the same rate as it did during the carbonic period because of um, bacteria that um, re-release that carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere really quickly. So, you know, there's a they're not the same things, and I suppose that's what you're referring to. You know, what, what would be a pity to go and spend a heap of money and go down a a, a, um, a route of solving um, methane emission from livestock if it's actually holistically not the problem that we perceive it is at the moment. Well, particularly if it's detrimental to, to some other traits, which which affects our pro- uh, productivity, because that's right. Then, yeah, then you're working against each other. So. You, I'd ha- I'm happily, uh, given that the, the, what you're saying is that uh, if we increase our production or our productivity, that goes hand in hand with helping that um, um, methane production per unit, I suppose. So yeah, it does. That. Yeah. But then if you come in with a with an overlay of genetics that are that are pushing too far that way and detrimental to, to the productivity, it's, then you, you're actually just walking one step forward two steps back, aren't you? So a bit of a... Yeah. Well, an an example of it is the US dairy industry produces... um, There's 9 million cows in the US um, that produce three times more milk than they did in the 50s when there was 23 million cows. Yeah. And so the methane um, intensity change over time is huge. Um, Compare that to India where there's... Um, 300 million cows and they produce a tenth of the milk that an American cow produces. The methane intensity there is extreme. So then should, should, should you then as a seed stock producer be happy in, in that uh, scenario? To, to yeah, that, I think that's a massive achievement. Mm. Yeah, it's not all genetics. It's, um, that, I don't know, in the dairy job, it's, I think it's said about 50%. So a lot of it, a lot of it's veterinary and uh, and nutrition and things as well. Um, so, but it's about half and half. See, the same sort of analogy could be said for for cost of production. You know, some some people think cost of production means not spending any money, but to get yeah. cost, of, cost of production down, you just produce more units. <laughs> <laughs> and actually spend more money but produce lots more units. It's the same type of thinking, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. So, and, um, you know, that's why I enjoy conversations with you about all that stuff because uh, it, it definitely – there are farmers, though, that, you know, are very successful by just not spending anything. And unfortunately, um, you know, don't, they're not always the most um, – they don't always have the best animal welfare, those sort of farmers either. Um, but I see them around. But, um, yeah, so um, you you run uh, about a 1,000 cows? Yep. And produce calves? You wean them straight off their mothers and off or do you – No, they, they get weaned um... – as early as possible to to get onto grass and and they don't get turned off until they're sort of four fifty to five hundred kilos steers and uh, heifers are probably more in the four twenty to four eighty uh, 
being dry heifers or pregnant heifers and the other turnoff, which is becoming quite significant in recent years, is the pregnant cow turnoff, um, which they all go at six years old because of, I suppose, 93 to 95% pregnancy rate in cows and 85% in heifers joining uh, all but about 10% of heifers and that all goes to keeping a young herd, like you were alluding to earlier. So yeah. the oldest cow on the farm is um, is five and a half, and then they all go at six, the whole age group. Yep. So um, there's a couple of things I'd like to expand on in there. Weaning, what, what um, age do you wean at? And what's your philosophy there? Uh, well, they get um, – they're coming off mum – uh, mid to late January, probably, and that's about the youngest calf is four months, I suppose. So, so trying to hit that five months of age in a tough year, they would be weaned earlier than that. But um, that's the aim. So it's on a calendar. Uh, the first calves come off first because they're the ones that really struggle to to um, keep pushing weight into calves and and keeping their own condition. So first calves come off first. So the, the thoughts around that really, uh, which has developed over a few years of trial and error, is really if you leave the calf on the cow uh, any longer, you've got to feed a lot of supplement to a cow to keep her condition up that, to then grow a calf. And I think what tends to happen is that you do neither. You, you neither keep the condition on the cow or get the calf to grow at any higher rate. So it's that's very inefficient. So so the philosophy there, I think, is take the calf off the cow. The cow then can, well, if you need supplement, that's fine, but she can maintain herself on very, very little, a, a different quality feed, and the calf can go on then to um, have a, uh, you can elect to supplement with a particular feed. With, so protein's the main thing they need. Uh, which is all they're getting from that little bit of milk at that point. They're actually only getting uh, protein. So if you can supply that elsewhere, the, the calf can act, you can actually get the calf to grow quicker in that regime for le- less cost, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of energy lost turning feed into milk. Yeah, yeah. And I think from the, the, the sheep, side of things when, when we had the sheep the, the early weaning of lambs or, or we considered it early but it's it's probably mainstream now that at 12 weeks of age I think a lamb's only getting 10% of its energy requirements out of milk and I don't know what the, the statistic on cattle is but it, it would be something similar yeah. I would have thought at a particular yeah, okay. age and also uh, Colin you said you um, did you say 90% of your heifers you keep uh, yeah join yeah, join. join, yeah, 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 yeah. And so the ten percent you don't are just, you know, probably small mothering problems or something in the herd. Are they? I mean, they really well unknown, I suppose. But it, yeah, I pretty much use a, a, a weight. Um, yeah, you know, they're three twenty. I, I seem to use three twenty as a yep. as a figure at the beginning of joining. That means by the second cycle they are in that three fifty. Um, but you know, if they haven't grown as well as I'd like through this period in, in some tough years, I'd I, I just go on numbers a little bit and just say, look, if I use 320, I might uh, I might be turfing out another 20% of the heifers, so I might even drop that to 280 and try and grow them through the spring a bit more, and, and that seems to work. 
Yeah. So you're treating your heifers almost like one of the production animals. You know, uh, like, yeah. uh, like a weight. You, you see the weight gain going on heifers as a financial benefit. You know, I think, I think people, well, I think we used to get, I used to get in the trap of thinking that heifers just cost us a heap of money. But they're actually valuable too, aren't they? They don't cost any more than a steer, do they? Um, to run, you mean? Yeah. Um, no, I, I probably use the heifers. Uh, I, I suppose they don't get as good a um, run as the steers do. I, I think the targets are different. The steer target at the same age is, is probably 80 kilos heavier than the heifers because they are there for the long term for us. They're, they're you know, if they're only, you know, three 320 and the steers are sort of 380, that that's probably what happens actually. But that, because yeah. they are a, a, an investment, if you like, that kilograms is not, as long as they hit the benchmarks of, of joining, that's that's sort of all we're after, I suppose, because they're in the herd for another five years, you know. Yeah, yeah. Look, we've always done that, and just recently, I put the heifers away on contract down to Andrew Irvin at Bay of Islands, and you know they've come back. We just, you know, we've got um, we sent down seven hundred seven hundred and ten, and six hundred and sixty six came back pregnant, and wow. You know that was a pretty, pretty good result, and I really? we've not really we've not really done that before here because the heifers again like exactly what you're saying. I don't even know if they just get left. You know, like there's so many classes of stock here of cattle. We have got bulls, two year olds, one year olds, um, cows, and you know rearing heifers. The, the heifers just sort of get the last. They shouldn't, and I shouldn't be really admitting this, but <laughs> it was a it was a it was a flaw in our management. So he needed to solve it, and that's why they went off an adjustment. Well, see, that's interesting because you know it's probably, and, and we're always trying to do things better, I suppose. Um, and maybe that's an area I, I could I could look at, I suppose, whether it be supplementary or I did send them away one year. We we had a tight year, and I managed to get some adjustment, and I, I was the same. They come back much better grown and i thought if i could do that every year that's perhaps i should be doing that and, and yeah outsourcing <laughs> that part of you <laughs> you heard so you're doing it so there you go so the heifers are 90 percent. you know a lot, a lot of people would pick through their heifers and get it down to 50 percent that they'd join to replace um older much older cows that are in the herd and sort of have an older system um but personally i think you know that's you, the younger the system, um, the more, you know, going back to that maintenance issue, the younger the um, system, the more, the less ratio of energy is being used on maintenance because, you know, it's, um, more animals are growing if their cows are younger. And so um, that's why you do that, sort of to... Um, or well, you, no, not, not initially. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite affirming... To, to hear that there's a, another advantage, I suppose. Um, but I think, I think the genetic turnover was the was the, the main thing right. there. Just to say, like after after six years, I know that I've had a whole a generation change in six years, and yep. so your genetic gain is much much better. Um, and so that's why I keep saying. 
uh, when we sell pregnant females to say that there's there's nothing wrong with these females. I'd happily carve any of them. All as it is is a genetic turnover, and someone else is getting the advantage of that because um, we've just got numbers to come into the herd, and uh, something's got to go out the other end. So the quality of the so you don't call them cull animals; they are actually just surplus animal surplus. Uh, females, the quality of yeah. those is quite high. So, yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. that's what's coming through now with the team Timonia sale that people are realising that this is an annual turnoff in in these things. They're not cull females; they're just surplus. So, yeah, it is no, a- that's good. So, yeah, I mean the turnoff turnover of genetics, uh, a generation is uh, one generation. You've you've influenced half of that through the decision you've made by using bulls which bulls you've used, in two generations, it's 75%. So, you know, um, in two generations in any cow herd, you can really significantly change those animals because of um, your decision if you have a system which is fast like that, which is pretty, um, you know, two generations, that's not a long time, is it, really, in in livestock? No. um and I suppose the other thing when you're talking about maintenance on young cows, I, I think when I see this all the time. So in your cow herd, you've got the old cows. They're you know they're obviously the 600, 600 plus kilos. And then and a cow is a cow when you do your averages. You know your, your uh, stocking rates and all the rest of it. You put that on, but you know in the back of your mind that, that all those young cows are much lighter cows. So your first calves are only uh, say 500 kilos or, or so. And your your second carvers might might be that five fifty, so then so that's why it gets very academic about uh, when I was saying about utilising your ten, uh, sorry your ninety percent. The the academics in that would say that a cow is a cow. Well, a cow's not a cow because they're not all six hundred kilos and they haven't all got that massive maintenance requirement. So then all, all of a sudden you put that into a spreadsheet. And your young cows are actually really helping you out on your maintenance. That's what you've just said a minute ago, which I hadn't put it in the way you have, mm. uh, have, have articulated it. But I I see that all the time, that your young cows, even though they probably need more because they've got to grow, they're not as big an animal and because they're, they're younger. Yeah, so part of the energy is going into growth, which is making you money. Yeah. And, and less energy is going into maintenance. Yeah. No, so look where... Um, Getting along through our chat, we better get to the tricky bit now and ask you, you know, your mistakes, masterpieces and mentors. So what what mistakes have you made? The major mistake I I think I've made is not doing uh, some of these things earlier. And, and you know, it's it's life, I suppose. You don't know what you don't know. But, um, you know, introducing some of these major profit drivers earlier uh, is is a mistake, and I think that stems from uh, not actually knowing uh, what can be achieved, and and that I think comes from people talk about the wrong things, and they don't actually measure the right things. Um, you know, I actually apportion that uh, type of mentality to why there's a slow uptake in some of these concepts because I think the wrong things are being discussed in the pub, if you like. Does that yeah. make sense? Oh, look, <laughs> um, I don't know where I can go with this, but, you know, in our game, in the seed stock game, holy moly, you know, the, um, everything that we do is about measuring, as you know. 
um, and, you know, defining what we want to do and where we need to go um, by using research and then collecting the data and changing the systems to suit it compared to in seed stock, you know, compared to lining up a whole lot of bulls uh, or taking them to the Royal Show and getting ribbons, you know, the, the, it's just chalk and cheese. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think that's why I've, I don't know, some people don't like talking about their figures. I don't necessarily either, but when you do some benchmarking and stuff, everyone, you know, people would like to keep that confidential. But I just wonder whether some of that stuff should be opened up a little bit more. Um, and I suppose I, I put out a figure there, not 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 to say it's wonderful. There's plenty of people doing better and all the rest of it, but it, it, it's a good, you know, the kilograms per hectare I'm talking about, mm. it's probably something to think about, isn't it? And, and, and it's not hard to measure and just say, well, well how does that work and can, can that be achieved? Can I do better? All that stuff. Yeah, but kilograms per hectare, I mean, you know, it's... Ultimately, it's really return on asset, isn't it? Uh, well, it is. But when I try, when I do a, a have done comparisons between sheep and cattle, for instance, and you just, because prices can have a major effect on that. So, in any given snapshot, you you could have sheep up and cattle down. So, I I've always thought yeah. that if you if you just put in kilograms a hectare and say say you were doing the same with two enterprises. Well, you just go. Well, what's the problem? <laughs> yeah. It's just the price is is the difference in profitability. That's how I think about it, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um. So the other mistake that, that I I must mention is that I I haven't thanked my wife enough for what she does over time, Tom. To be honest. Uh, yeah. You know, so that that's been a mistake. I think she's a very integral part of the the business, and um, that's been a well, mistake. You, you better go and thank her after you get off this. Well, I, I will, and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we need. Uh, what what are we after next? The um, your um, masterpieces. Uh, well, I, I, the the main masterpiece I, I think is um, is purchasing this this uh, block of land that we're on is is actually a masterpiece with my wife Karen because uh, that that was a turning point. Uh, that was an absolute turning point in our lives, I suppose. Uh, a local farm that that's uh, I think it's it's got high regard in the in the district, and um, yeah, we made it our own. So the, and and it took a lot of doing, to be honest. It 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 really took a lot of doing. So that that I consider a masterpiece. Had to pull a lot of things together, economically and. Um, and put in a production system that was going to actually make that work. So hence this. Uh, production system was probably that that was the major turning point to to have the opportunity to instigate a production system that was very profitable to satisfy the banks basically <laughs> so that's a masterpiece yeah. how's that yeah good and uh, mentors yeah well I, I had to think about that a little bit too and actually had to look at uh, the definition of mentors because I mean, we all think of someone as a mentor that maybe is someone that sits next to you and and, uh, and uh, watches over you to a degree. But I, I just I always, always thought that a, a mentor could be someone that was inspirational, that's had an effect uh, along the journey. And so I've got a bit of a, a list, if that's okay. No, that's fine. Yeah. And then, look, mentor, the definition of mentor, well, it hasn't changed, but um, it 
I suppose the next our, our children use it a lot more and, and and much more wisely than when you did when we were children, don't you think? You know, they um, it's something that's been it wasn't really talked about when I was young, really, mentors. I think they were assumed but not really discussed. So anyway. No, and that's that's why I thought I sort of had a bit of a think about that. So yeah, my father in obviously uh, a huge inspiration, I suppose, to see what what could be done, and I think that he was probably the, my inspiration to take on farming, to be honest. Um, so that's the first one. Another uh, a guy that uh, who, who's a, a very good stock person, a very good cattle person, who who was my boss. Uh, one of my first bosses was Ian Cameron. I don't know whether you know the name. Yeah. But he was uh, an inspiration to me. I, I don't have a lot to do with some of these people. Um now but he was inspirational um steve brain has always been a an inspiration and um and we have lots of chats and so he's he's one i'd call a, a mentor uh dr phil holmes from holmes and sackett he's now retired but he i have had nothing to do with dr phil holmes other than a two-day workshop that i went to in mount gambia and he was the uh, he was the convener um, but some of the concepts and the um, figures and the facts uh, that he put across in, in such a no-nonsense way was quite compelling to me and, and pretty much followed that advice, if you like, from a, from a workshop. And I'd, he wouldn't know me and I haven't seen him since, <laughs> but that, yeah, was, that, that was actually, a, I think, a turning point and an inspirational two-day uh, workshop. Uh, a good friend of mine in Tim Chapman um, is another one. We've been friends for years. He's in a, a totally different business, but we talk about things quite a lot. And my wife, Karen, is is actually a mentor uh, when I thought about it because uh, a lot of the things that are thought about, uh, my wife is a, is a, is a sounding board. She, she gets sick of things getting bounced off her at times, but I think the affirmation... Uh, from my wife has been a wonderful thing. Well, that, that's a great list. We're getting, to, uh, we're finishing up now. So, um, look, Colin, I'd just like to say that I know when I see you coming towards me, often um, with Stephen Brain at your side or vice versa, uh, I've got to turn on my grey gray matter because there's going to be some questions flowing that aren't going to be easy to answer. And uh, <laughs> you're, you're a real thinker and uh, you do a you know, you you you're um, inspirational for me to be around. At times being listening to what you say and um, you're in um, very in, uh, fascinating way that you look at the environment and the farm that you're managing. And you know, it's it's a really good thing to see and converting that into economics. So, thanks for coming on the um, Rorag podcast and um, look forward to catching up with you soon. Yeah, thanks for the kind words, Tom, and thanks uh, thanks for the opportunity. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.